Hey, and welcome to the Sullivan on Comp podcast. Today's episode is audio from a recent Sullivan on Comp webinar. SOC webinars include video and slides, and subscribers receive professional credit for attending. This recording is free, but doesn't qualify for credit. To learn more, visit www.sullivanoncomp.com. This podcast does not constitute legal advice. Instead, it's provided for informational purposes. Only your attorney, with complete knowledge of the facts and circumstances of your situation, can determine how the relevant laws apply. Now, on to the episode. Hello, everybody out there in workers' comp land, and welcome to yet another one of our webinars um, and on the COVID-19 update. I think this is number five. If number five. So. Yeah, okay. I think it's number five. Did a lot of these things. Um, I am here today with the lovely and talented Rosa Williams. Hello, Rosa. Hello. Hello, everyone. That's her picture and her identifying information, and I got mine up there too. Rosa is the managing partner of, of our successful San Diego office. And that's where we process all of our mail down there too, right? <laughs> We've got a lot of staff. Yeah, yeah, we do. And they're all at home. <laughs> except for five. Yes. Yeah, except, except for, for the essentials. Yeah. So Rosa's going to help me out. Um, people get tired of hearing me. Uh, so, you know, she's going to help me out with some of these slides. And we're going to talk to you today about um, the next segment, which is um, temporary disability. But first, I wanted to differentiate between the law firm and Sullivan and Comp. So this is a production of Michael Sullivan and Associates, which is the name of our law firm. So we got a fairly big workers' comp defense firm here. I think it was last count it was 80-something lawyers. Yeah, somewhere, yeah. somewhere thereabouts. Nine offices throughout the state. I'm a general managing partner, and we've expanded in, in the last few years to employment issues, immigration law, and insurance litigation, civil stuff. So it's been, pretty, it's been a great ride. Yeah, definitely. How big yeah. were we when you when you started? I think there was about eight lawyers. Yeah. Wow. Started in yeah 2009. I can't so, believe I had the panache to recruit years. you with that little going on. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. <laughs> yeah. I went after you aggressively though, didn't I? Yes, you did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. I really did. And it worked. And I'm yeah, glad, it I, and I'm glad I'm here. <laughs> but I'm also the author of Sullivan and Comp. Sullivan and Comp is a, a comprehensive treatise on um, all of workers' comp law, and I'm really proud of it. And if you're listening to this, you may indeed be a subscriber. Probably you are. Uh, we have close to 7,000 subscribers now, I think, uh, all over the state. Everyone's got it. Judges, claims adjusters, other lawyers. I really think it has become the standard text uh, for workers' comp. But this is not a prediction of uh, Sullivan on comp. This is a Sullivan on comp prediction. Yes, I take it back. Sorry, I get all mixed up. I just handed me a note. I don't even know what I'm doing. <laughs> it is a Sullivan on Comp production. I'm sorry. But we're giving it to the whole world. That's what it is. Yeah. See, because with Sullivan on Comp, we do a monthly webinar updating everyone for half an hour on the, the what happened the month before in terms of case law. And then every quarter, we do an hour and a half on a topic of interest like medical marijuana, something like that. Um, but coronavirus, man, it's such a big deal that we decided to do special webinars with Solvent Comp, but then make it available to everybody for free. Great. Yeah, yeah. I think. And you can even get credit for it, I think, uh, across the board. Everyone can get credit. CE credit or MCLE credit if you're uh, a lawyer. Also, um, and you're doing it live right now. I'm doing it live right now. No, if you're, if you're in attendance right now, you get credit. Not uh, oh, I see. If you're in a, okay, got it. Sorry. They're, they're helping me as I go along. <laughs> If you are in attendance right now, then you can get credit. If you listen to it later and you're not a Sullivan and Comp subscriber, then you can't. Yeah. So anyway, I wanted to announce too, I'm really happy and proud of this. Uh, we did a book about um, COVID-19, a complete guide for the California employers and you can get it at Sullivan Attorneys. This thing is so cool. We got our whole team of um, writers of Sullivan and Comp for Work Comp Law. We got our whole team for... Uh, the employment law section, our immigration lawyer, and we did a complete, complete expose on coronavirus and what it's going to mean legally. So, what are all the laws? You know, it's tons and tons of new federal laws, California laws, local laws. What do they mean? Uh, what is the workers' comp implications of this? What are the issues? And it's just on and on and on. If you printed it out, it'd be like 120 pages, but it covers everything. I'm really proud of it. We sent it to everybody. I'm really hoping that it will become ubiquitous throughout the state. Um, it was really hard to do, and we did it in a short period of time. It was a, I'm really proud of the team. So if you've already gotten this, I hope you look at it. I hope you find it useful. And uh, if you don't have it, I encourage you to access it, put it on your desktop. It's going to be electronic only. 
It's the first book we've ever done that isn't hard copy as well. And uh, it's always going to be updated. So what's going to happen is as time goes on day by day, you know, this, this stuff is changing every day. Absolutely. Yeah. All the time. So every day that it ha we're just going to change it on the spot. So nice. if you look at it, then you're not seeing what you saw yesterday, but it's the only way to do it because this, this is a, it's in fluid motion. Right. So that's what this is. And, and it's, it, you know, we've been getting all, through all these webinars, questions throughout the industry. We try to answer them all. And as we get more and more input, more and more questions, we'll continue to expand it and, and you know, think more deeply. And we'll, we'll put our deeper thoughts in there too. So really happy with it. If you're listening to this, I advise you to check it out because I think it'll, it'll really be a help to you in this era. Okay, well, let's get down to it. Um, you know, I said a couple of webinars ago that my thinking about workers' comp liability for um, um, for for the coronavirus crisis had be, was not very good. I didn't think <laughs> okay. because at first I thought, well, it's no big deal from a workers' comp perspective because you get better, right? You get better if you get the flu, you get better, or you die, right? Okay. So yeah, there'd be some death cases. But it, but then I realized, oh my gosh, there's so many issues in workers' comp. Just the AOEC we issue alone is is pretty vast. When you think about um, you know aggravating an underlying condition that's industrial, or you think about an industrial COVID aggravating a non-industrial condition, right. or you think about the fact that everyone's working at home as a second website, or the going and coming rule, or just the psychiatric problems. I mean, even if you're not if you don't have the disease, you can still have psychiatric claims because they're working at home when they're lonely or if they're scared. Right. And uh, what about 32.8.3 defenses? And oh, my gosh, I was missing out on so much. And so what we've done is we've broken this out. And what I told everyone is I'm going to do a webinar once a week. And we're going to care. We're going to talk about a topic of great interest. So if you look at our website, then you'll see that the first few were just with our employment law lawyers and um, more general terms in terms of COVID crisis. Um, but we're going to go through a series of webinars to get more specific. I really want to get into the AOE-COE stuff, but there's some things I think that have more urgency. One of them is temporary disability liability. Last week, I talked about is, should you provide the claim form to someone making a claim of COVID-19 uh, injury or related. And I talked about that for an hour because <laughs> <laughs> it's just so crazy. It, it's It's like... This, 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 this crisis is bringing out all these areas of law that we have some basis for, but we don't truly understand. We don't truly understand all of it. So um, I'm trying to break it down into several one hour chunks. And last time we did claim form and next time we're gonna start, I think on AOE, COE issues. Uh, but this time we're gonna talk about temporary disability because temporary disability is um, probably the most frequently asked question we get. The most, I agree. Yeah. yeah. You too? Yeah, Just absolutely. In, in your yeah. office in San Diego? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, in the webinars, that's what we get. Right. Know. Okay. So it's, and they ask, they ask, okay, so I have an employee working modified duty, they're temporarily partially disabled, but I've accommodated them, right? Right. And then? And then we have the shelter in place. We have the shelter in place. <laughs> or we have a layoff. Exactly. Right? So yeah. now, which is the same thing, I guess. They're not yeah. working anymore, getting any more wage at all. Right. Do I have to pay them total temporary, total temporary disability? Or um, I think we recited in this thing as TPD. I think I was thinking of that as temporary permanent disability. Or temporary or partial disability. Temporary partial, yeah. yeah. So what do you do in that situation? And do you have liability? Um, and if you do it wrong, you know, there's a 132 way. Um, so we're going to talk about that. Rose is going to take the lead on those slides, and I'm going to interrupt you and um, ask you questions and make comments. And then um, we're going to talk a little bit. I promised every week that I keep everyone up to date, just generally on what's going on. Uh, one of the things that's going on is that they have a, a, a bill that's been introduced to allow for a presumption um, of compensability. And it's not passed yet, but there has been bills passed throughout the country uh, on this, and I, I suspect it will be passed in California as well. It's more limited than its original conception, but I want to tell everyone about that at the end, okay? Uh, if we have time, so so that's what we're doing today. We're gonna try and go deep on the TTD. I think the short answer is not to steal your thunder, but you could take you're a gonna, position. You're gonna tell us the end of the story now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can take a position either way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So anyway, but I'll let you lead. All right. From so yeah, why is temporary total disability such an important question in today's um, workers' comp climate? Um, well, obviously we're, we're kind of living in crazy times right now. With the COVID-19 breakout, 
Um, we had a, the governor's order uh, telling everybody to stay at home. So what happened with that is we had a lot of employers who had to shut down. Some had to restructure and some had to be laid off. Some employees had to be laid off because of it. Mm -hmm. And what that what happens with that is you get some unexpected exposures in workers' comp. And some of those unexpected exposures come in the form of temporary disability. Did you have to send everyone home from San Diego? Uh, there's a few essential employees that are working, yeah, uh -huh. because they're handling the snail mail. So you do have some employees out there who continue to work. But, right. uh, but there's small businesses such as restaurants who are not able to keep uh, their doors open and obviously have to lay off numer numerous employees. So it's pretty scary. I heard somewhere something like 46% of California workers are unemployed. I heard that somewhere. It's probably wrong, but it's there's a, lot. a good Yeah, there's a good number. A yeah. number of people have applied for unemployment. Either temporary or permanent. Yeah. And then you've got the, the feds that are giving away money, right? Forgivable loans. <laughs> right. To keep businesses going for, but you have to use it to, to pay your payroll. That's right. For two months. Yeah. And um, yeah, we had the whole law firm home, working from home in two days. Up in Northern California, we had six hours to get everybody out of the office and, and end up working out of their home, brought their computers home and everything. That's not a lot of time, yeah. <laughs> but it's pretty bad. Anyway, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. By all means, step in. <laughs> so essentially what happens is um, when, when that happens, you may have an employee who is, is either completely disabled from work or partially disabled from work. And how do you handle those situations? Well, can you describe for us what is it? what's the difference? Absolutely. Yeah. So when you have an employee who's completely disabled from work, it's because they have a doctor's order saying you can't do any type of work at all because of your work injury. So you're you're really losing all of your earnings because of that. And that's what temporary disability is. It's a wage replacement. So the employee is getting temporary disability because they're replacing the wages they couldn't earn because they're not able to function because of the injury. Now, is that just, is just does that mean that you're just temporarily totally disabled from the job that you did when you were hurt? Or does it mean from any job in the universe? Um, it primarily means from the job that you were hurt at, but it does impact your earning capacity. So if you're not able to go out and get a job because of that, then yes, it has to do with any other employment you have outside of that job where you yeah. got injured. So yeah. the doctor says TTD, it means there's no work you can do. Correct. Yeah. 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 So that's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. But, yeah. I'm su that sounds a little dramatic. I'm surprised some, it's so easy to declare someone TTD because I could think of a lot of jobs people could do, but I think they just, they decide it relative to their current job, really. Absolutely. As a matter yeah. of practicality. And the, and the extent of the injury, the severity of the injury. Yeah. But yeah, so um, in comparison to a partially disabled employee, a partially disabled employee could either have physical restrictions in the sense that they can't perform their full work activity um, because of the injury, um, or they could have reduced hours. The doctor could suggest that they only work four hours instead of eight hours a day, and that will allow them to function at work with their disability. Mm. Either way, you have a partially disabled employee, and in each instance, um, there may be either temporary partial disability benefits owed or temporary total disability benefits owed. And yeah. whether they're owed a temporary total disability is dependent on whether the employer can provide that employee work within the restrictions that mm -hmm. were given by the doctor. Well, so, you have to anyway, right? Because of FIHA and ADA accommodation rules. You have to make an effort. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, we're pretty familiar with this in workers' comp land, I think, this concept in employment land. Yeah. Um, okay. So it's like I fall down and hurt my back, right? Then I come to work and I can't lift boxes. So then that means that I, I do my regular job, but I don't lift the boxes or I have to put me in a a different an alternate job that's either a modified job or an alternate job right? yeah something completely um, different something that completely different. yeah that do they makes... have to make up a job to keep you there <laughs> they're not required to fabricate a job to keep uh, you there as long as it's there. part of the business and they're still in the business is still able to essentially function uh -huh. um, and they have a job available that that person can do that's within the essential functions of the of the business then that's as far as the employer has to go okay yeah but if I have to take Vicodin at noon every day because my back hurts so bad, I can still work from nine to twelve. But that's okay, right? I mean, I can. That's that's a form of tar, uh, partial disability as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So it could be like difference in job duties and the creation is alternative or modified, and then there's just less just less work. But either way, you're partial. Yeah. Yeah. You're not completely unable to do your occupation. There's a lot of employers out there with uh, light duty uh, programs, mm -hmm. right? Right, um, where they have nonprofit organizations, mm -hmm. yeah, that yeah. will hire them. Or they just have them sitting there sorting paper clips because they don't want them home on TTD 
watching Gomer Pyle and eating bonbons, right? <laughs> they don't or like the, that. Or the, the employees get used to it. They'd rather make them unhappy sorting paper clips than, right. or at least have to work some, do something. Or they can have them be a host uh, and greet people in front of the store at Walmart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. There's a lot it's of people very... in this reality. Yeah. There's absolutely. a lot of people in this reality. Yeah. You know, the temporary partials are everywhere. So right. it's a big deal in, in an environment where everyone's laid off, furloughed, or sent home. Right. So when you have those two, two different aspects of disability and then you have uh, the COVID-19 breakout and you have a governor's order saying that um, you have to stay at home, it brings in another factor into play. Um, and so there's differing perspectives as to whether a person who is partially disabled is owed temporary total disability if, if you have this stay at home order that's mm -hmm. issued by the governor. Now, there's differing perspectives on whether the employee is owed temporary total disability in those circumstances. There's arguments for the applicant receiving temporary total disability and arguments against that. And we'll go through that. Um, of course, for the employee, he'll, the employee is going to argue that they definitely should receive temporary total disability. Mm -hmm. They were already incapacitated at the time that they were working modified duty. So now they're out in the world competing with other employees with the diminished ability to earn capacity. So they're, they're in a disparate position in comparison to other non-injured employees looking for work. That would be their position. Uh, from the employer's perspective, it's not their fault that the governor came in and said that um, you've got to, you know, uh, have all your employees work from home and suddenly you have to shut down your doors. From the employer's perspective, that wasn't something that they voluntarily decided on. That was something that was imposed by the government. So why should they be penalized by well, having TD to pay? is for wage replacement. There wouldn't have been a wage anyway. That's another. Well, we'll get into yeah. some of those different, yeah. yeah, differing perspectives as to which sides. Yeah. yeah um, for Are you going to tell us what you think at the end? Uh, I, I can <laughs> certainly tell you that. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, so some of the case law that has come into play on, on addressing this uh, gray area is Pacific Employers. This was a landmark decision that was issued by the California Supreme Court. And in that situation, you had a carpenter who was doing rough carpenting, injured on the job, and then had work restrictions placed on him. Um, the doctor basically said, you can't do the rough carpenting, you can do the finished carpenter, carpentry work. And but the employer wasn't able to provide him with that. So ultimately, the California Supreme Court decided that yes, the employee was owed temporary total disability because the employer could not prove that they could provide the employee with the light duty work. Mm -hmm. And from this was born the odd lot doctrine. Odd lot doctrine. Yes, and so there's a string of cases that follow this odd lot doctrine, which we'll get into, into the next slide. And um, one of those cases is the Stewart case. In that case, what you had was an individual who was injured at work, um, was placed on modified work, and then continued performing the modified work, uh, and then was la eventually laid off. So in that situation, um, the... I think you're on the next slide. I'm sorry. I am. Yeah. I'm not keeping up with you. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to stop you for a second, though. The, the odd lot doctrine, that's like a 1950s case, right? It was like the 1953 or something like that. The original case, Pacific Employers. Yeah, 1959. Yeah. And, you know, it's a weird term, odd lot, because it's like that's sort of like old terminology from a long time ago. I think today it would be you're in a strange position relative to the market, right? Yeah. Because they the, used to say your lot in life, right? Well, it was odd. And why was it odd? It was odd because you could sort of work, but you couldn't really work. You know? Well, and I think the reason they use that language is because it was sort of a small area of an of a situation where an employee is partially disabled, mm -hmm. then becomes completely disabled, because uh, originally they were just partially disabled, but because there's no light duty work offered by the employer, uh, then they suddenly become totally disabled. Mm, They're now in the odd? realm. It's it's a situation that isn't common. That, uh, so yeah. that's why I think that they use that word, odd lot doctrine. Yeah. I spent a lot yeah. of time figuring that out when I wrote that section on Solvent on Comp because it sounded so weird. Yeah, it is a, a kind of a interesting term. All right. So then in this case, they say he could do rough carpentering, but he couldn't be a finished carpenter. So he was par temporarily partially disabled, really. That's he was temporarily partially idea. disabled, and the employee couldn't, the employer could not offer the light duty work. So essentially, the temporary total disability was owed. And so uh, that's where the Supreme Court decided that temporary total disability was owed to the applicant. Um, and they said that the, I was reading, I should go back to the prior slide. 
the, the doctrine places the burden on the employer to show that work within the capabilities of partial dis disabled employee is available. Correct. Thank you for bringing that up. Yes. So what does that mean? Basically, if um, the employee is disabled, partially disabled from work, if you go and you litigate this issue, it's not up to the uh, employee to say, look, you know, there was no work available. It's up to the employer to come in and say, here, we had work available for him. And so we don't owe that employee temporary total disability. So the, the onus is on the employer to show that there was light duty available. If they can't prove that, then the employee is owed the temporary total disability. Now, is that work available from the employer or work available in the world? That is work available from the employer. Okay. Yes. So mm -hmm. the employer has to show that that work within the capabilities of the partial disabled employee is available. Yes. I, I, they're going to give them work. Right. Now, keep in mind that if that employee goes out in the world and he gets a job, then he's got wages. Right. So you don't need the temporary total disability because there's wages that he's earning, so it's not a wage replacement. Right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. Makes sense. All right. So going on to the Stewart this case. This was like 10 years ago. This is more recent. Yeah. The Stewart case are also Owen, Owens, Illinois. Um, in that situation, the WCAB did follow the odd lot doctrine principle and um, determined that an employee who was injured at work and then placed on modified work, who continued to work in modified work until the, that employee was laid off, um, was owed temporary total disability. Um, they went out looking for work after they got laid off, couldn't find anything, and so the WCAB determined that the employee was owed temporary total disability. Well, what now, relevance does it have that they went out in the world and tried to find something else? I thought it was the employer just had to prove that they were gonna, they could have provided modified duty. Oh, because the employer didn't make that offer of proof. Correct. So yeah. if the employer can't make the offer of proof, then under this case, if she, did, did the applicant have to show that there's nothing else in the world for her to do? No, not necessarily. Oh. Yeah. Um, but this is just a circumstance that identified in this situation, the employee was owed temporary total disability because they weren't receiving any earnings elsewhere. Yeah, I'm asking because I'm just thinking about the environment right now. So who's going to find work right now? Nobody. Yeah. yeah. Right? Well, we'll go into that, into some of the decisions that would be beneficial to the employer. Yeah. Getting ahead of you again. All right. It's okay. It's okay. It's I'm just right. very eager. <laughs> very eager. <laughs> So in essence, um, that Stewart case was appealed by the defendants, um, but the Court of Appeal um, decided not to review it. That doesn't necessarily mean that the Court of Appeal agreed with the WCAB. That's a writ denied case. Correct. So is yeah. that, well, the prior case you told us about was a Supreme Court case. Correct. So that's, you know, yeah. you got to think that you got to follow that. Well, you got to follow the principles yeah. in that, in yeah. that the employer would have the burden to prove whether or not there was light duty available. Do you have to follow a writ denied case? No, you don't. Yeah, you know, it's not binding case law. It's not binding, but it's just, but it's still precedent. It's persuasive and it can be used yeah. for an argument. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So in the Bedoya case, um, also following the line of the odd lot doctrine, a um, little bit different, but very similar. In this case, the employee suffered an injury, but didn't report or claim benefits until after the employee was laid off. Now, you wonder why there wasn't a post-termination defense that was attached to this, but possibly there wasn't enough there for it to survive, for a post-termination defense to survive. But mm. either way, in this instance, um, the employee suffered an injury, was partially disabled, laid off, and then he claimed temporary total disability. Now, it was up to the employer to prove whether or not they could have provided the employee light-duty work before he was laid off. They couldn't do that. So in this WCAB case, um, the employee was also awarded temporary total disability. Well, okay, benefits. but in our in the situation today, it's like the employer obviously could have provide was providing modified duty. So who cares about these cases? Well, no, the other case, the uh, Stewart case, is more in line with that particular scenario because that employee was working in a modified position before they were laid off. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, that was the written I case, though. Correct. That's not the Supreme Court case. Correct. So that's just what what one judge said. Correct. Yeah. Uh -huh. And this case, this is uh, the citation of the Bedoya case that we're looking at. That makes me that makes me think it's um, it's not a written denied case. It's a panel case. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. This is also not a binding decision. Right. So right. panel cases are created when you file a petition for reconsideration with after judge rules a trial. And then they consider it up in San Francisco. Right. And so it's not binding, but it shows you what the board is thinking. But it's not the Supreme Court. Correct. The no, the Supreme yeah. Court would be binding. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, 
you can see that in these decisions, they basically support the, the position of the, of the employee saying that they should be owed a temporary total disability. But again, as pointed out by Mike, these are not binding cases. So the courts are not required to follow these decisions, but they certainly can be used as argument. Okay, um, so moving on to um, some of the language in the Pacific Employers case, which was a, the Supreme Court case. In that, le in that case, there was language there that if there are non-industrial factors that are contributing to the employee's complete inability to work, those non-industrial factors need to be considered. Hmm. Um, so arguably, in the situation where you have someone who is doing modified work and then the shelter-in-place order came in, in into, into play, and that employee could no longer do, do that work, the modified work, because of that government order, that could be construed as a non-industrial factor. Hmm. And that that had no bearing on the employer's doing or the employee's doing. And so for that reason, the employee would not be owed temporary total disability. There is some line of reasoning that is being followed or has been followed in other cases. And that would be... Well, wait a minute, before you give us yeah. that, when I, you say some other... Um... What did you say? Some other a non-industrial factor yeah, that comes into factor. play. When you say that, what I usually what I think of immediately is some other comorbidity, like something else is wrong with you physically, not like in the world, like there's a situation in the world that that uh, happens to you. Right, and and I would an example would be somebody who suffers a back injury, yeah. and then they have work restrictions to say only do sedentary work, right? Uh, and then suddenly they suffer a non-industrial heart attack. Right. And they can't do any work because, because of the, of the heart back, attack. Back and the heart. Well, primarily because of the heart attack, because uh -huh. they were able to do modified work, but the heart attack prevents them from doing any work. But I thought this was about when the causes were combining, the industrial and non-industrial cause combined to make you unable to work. And those are factors that are considered as well. Mm -hmm. But what that what the language is saying is you've got to consider those non-industrial non factors as well okay. into the whole spectrum, right? Well, then how do you define non-industrial factors? Do you remember what exactly what they were in the Pacific Employers or was it that was that dicta? That was dicta and yeah. also they didn't define that. Okay. Yeah. Dicta is like when the court says something that isn't directly on point about the law, which isn't directly on point to the facts in the case they're considering. So it's like the court is saying something, but they really shouldn't be saying it because they're just philosophizing, right? Yeah. And it's not necessarily so that can, you can use it in litigation to support or have a, a, a court or a judge follow the mm -hmm. case law because it's just- So they threw notes. this word out, they threw this term out. What is it again? Different non-industrial- Non-industrial factors. Non-industrial factors, okay. <laughs> yeah. So we don't know what that means. <laughs> they don't define it. Yeah. As of now, okay. But we do have a case that seemed to follow that line of reasoning, and that's the Hargrove case. So in that instance, we had an employee who was performing light duty work because of a, a work injury, and then he was discharged for reasons unrelated to his physical condition. The case doesn't identify what those reasons unrelated to his physical condition were. Mm -hmm. So we still don't have a clear definition of what those things could be. Can they Are they comorbidities or are they factors outside of the employment such as a uh, government shutdown? So mm -hmm. it doesn't really define it. But in that instance, the, uh, the Court of Appeal did say that the employee would not be owed a temporary total disability because there was an unrelated physical condition that completely disabled the employee, not the work condition. I don't know what it was. Nope, they didn't define it. The court explained that there are circumstances in which temporary partial disability may account for total wage loss, and there are others when a cause other than disability accounts for some part of the wage loss. What does that mean? What it's basically saying is that if an employee is, is, is working and they're doing modified work, and then there's some other factor that comes into play that takes them out of the employment that has nothing to do with the injury uh -huh. and nothing that's connected to work, then they're not going to get temporary total disability. Okay. Right. All right. Well, isn't that different than Pacific? Was it Pacific something? Uh, it's not necessarily different because uh, Pacific employers basically said that you have to consider whether there's non-industrial factors that come into play that are incapacitating a, an individual completely from work. Hmm. In this case, it kind of followed that line of reasoning. It basically said that it there were reasons unrelated to the physical condition that were disabling the employee made him not be able to work. Okay. So. 
Okay, so there are other decisions as well. That... Did we just did we go past this? Did we talk through this stuff? <laughs> In our grove, they were we just talking about that. So yeah, we were just talking about that, and and it, that it's in the same line of reasoning as Pacific Employers because mm -hmm. they had basically identified that you have to consider non-industrial factors. So okay. it kind of followed the Pacific Employers line of reasoning. So he was just discharged for some reason unrelated to his physical condition. So it's totally unrelated. It's not like the industrial and non-industrial conditions collapsed together to cause the problem. No, it was the final non-industrial factor that completely took the employee out of work. Because without that, absent that, that employee would have been able to do at least partial work, yeah. either with restrictions or with, with reduced hours. And it says specific employers requires the specific findings and a separate evaluation of the different factors. Correct. Yeah. So for instance, in the with the individual who had the in the hypothetical who had the heart attack, the non-industrial heart attack, obviously you would need a physician to say that that was the reason he couldn't work mm -hmm. and that that was a non-industrial factor. Okay. So. Okay. So um, what you have is you have a difference in how it, things are interpreted between the Stewart and the Bedoya cases. In those cases, they seem to feel that a layoff was still something where the employee could receive temporary total disability benefits. They didn't look at a layoff as a non-industrial factor. Um, whereas in Pacific Employers and Hargrove, they seem to, well, Pacific Employers is the uh, seminal case, mm -hmm. and we're looking at the dicta in that language, and Hargrove follows. In those decisions, they seem to look at other factors, non-industrial factors, but they didn't define a layoff as a non-industrial non factor. Mm. So it leaves all of this up in the air. There's no clear um, case law that really ad addresses the environment that we're currently in and how that would impact temporary total disability. I don't know. I mean, Pacific employers at Hargrove are, are Court of Appeal and Supreme Court cases, and Stewart and Bedoya are not, are not binding precedent. But we don't have anything that really fits right squarely right into our circumstances where we have a layoff by a government order so okay. yeah we don't necessarily have some really clear-cut evidence so this would be definitely an issue triable at the wcab but obviously each case has to be addressed on its own merits yeah. but we also have other cases that also um, support a, an employer's position that um, temporary total disability benefits wouldn't be owed such as the signature fruit or the achoa case um, in that case we had an employee who was working seasonal work, working some months, not working mm. other months. And then the employee gets injured. So, and the employee's temporarily totally disabled, not able to work at all. During those months where that employee would normally work, they would receive temporary total disability. Mm. But during the months that the employee didn't work, they wouldn't receive any temporary total disability because there's no earnings to replace. It's like picking fruit and then stop picking fruit. Yeah. Teaching school and then stop teaching school over the summer. Right. So ultimately, um, if we were to analogize that to our current environment where somebody is uh, forced to stay at home and not be able to work and possibly be laid off, then they don't have earnings. And as Mike said, where else would they work? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there's you can work as a grocery clerk, you can work as a delivery driver, but still the idea is what earnings are you replacing mm -hmm. if you have a government shutdown? So this is a, a case law that you could that the employer could use to suggest that temporary total disability benefits would not be owed to an employee that was formally offered modified work. Yeah, I like this quote. It would be illogical to award an employee temporary disability as a wage replacement where it's undisputed that there otherwise would not be a wage to replace. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but you know, if you're an applicant, you're say, hey, yeah, but this is seasonal work. So that's not the analogy is false because I'm going home indefinitely on a period where I otherwise would be working. Right? That's exactly what the employer, the employee side would say. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. okay. So we also have the skeleton decision. Um, this was really more geared as to whether an employee would be owed temporary total disability while attending medical appointments. So in this instance, um, you have an employee who suffered an injury but is able to do modified work or even regular work. And now they're wanting temporary total disability for just attending a medical appointment. Um, and in that situation, the, the court basically said, no, you don't get temporary total disability when you're attending medical appointments because your attendance at a medical appointment has nothing to do with your ability or non-ability to physically perform your work. Mm -hmm. So um, unless your 
inability to work is somehow directly connected to your physical impairment, um, you are not going to get temporary total disability. Hmm. So again, we can analogize this to our current environment in the sense that the layoff or the government order to um, shelter down had nothing to do with the physical impairment, but just an outside force that came in and said, look, everybody's got to work from home. Mm-hmm. So um, this is you know, something that could be argued by the employer to say that temporary total disability is not owed. Yeah, I was really surprised when I read Skelton for the first time because here's an applicant going off of work to go to a medical appointment to get better, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not, they don't get any temporary disability for it. They have to use their sick time. Right. Yeah, I was really surprised by that. But I guess the point was, look, that, that actually is, is strongly supportive of the defense side because they're saying, look, the reason you are not at work is not because you're hurt. It's because you're doing something else, even though the only reason you go to the doctor is because you're hurt in the first place. <laughs> I mean, I just was surprised by that result. Probably because it was a court of appeals case. If it was, I would be stunned into unconsciousness if it was a WCAB case. Yeah. <laughs> right. But you never know what the court of appeal is going to do. Nope, you surely don't. No. But um, yeah, so just to summarize, um, the Ochoa and the Skelton cases um, basically raise issues as to uh, whether you have non-industrial factors or factors outside of the play of the physical injury that that cause the employee not to work and that for that reason um, they are not owed temporary total disability because it's not necessarily directly caused by um, the physical injury itself. Mm-hmm. It could be considered as a non-industrial factor um, also identified in the Hargrove case. So we do have the employer does have legitimate arguments to say that the employee is not owed temporary total disability. Now keep in mind, of course, though, that these arguments have to be addressed case by case basis because each case has its own facts and its own merits as to the issue. Hmm. And also, the employer could get like a, a penalty against them for not providing like 5814 penalty against them for not providing TD in these kinds of cases. I think you've presented very uh, great case law, Mike, to suggest that the <laughs> employers could raise this as a viable defense uh, and still argue this. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, looks like we're going to have a fight. Okay. Now, are you a jerk? Like if you're an employer and you don't give them TD, you know, when they were modified, are you a jerk? Uh, jerk that's that's kind of <laughs> <laughs> that really legal consideration? i think that's a matter of opinion <laughs> well you could argue that that well the, uh, this next slide is about edd but right i was thinking that if someone on modified duty gets um td when everyone has to go home no one else gets td right right mm-hmm. so in a sense it's kind of reverse discrimination against healthy workers you know what I mean to say is, <laughs> why is that worker being treated better, differently than people that are without injury? Because they're all being sent home for the same reason. And the employee's position would be, because I suffered an injury and they didn't. Well, how about this? What, how about if I was a worker and I said, you know what? Those healthy people can go look for other work, but I can't because I am partially disabled and I looked around and I can't find anything. Yeah, it's going to be a lot harder for me to find a job that fits into my work restrictions in comparison to somebody else who doesn't have any work restrictions whatsoever. Yeah. So that would be the employee's argument. So if I was an employee, I'd probably come to court prepared to say, I tried to get a job as an Uber driver, but I can't because of my restrictions. Correct. I tried to get a job as a grocery clerk, but there's none, but it's too hard because of my restrictions. That's exactly right. Mm. Yeah. Might that work? Well, you know, we do have- It's an odd lot. We want to consider in all of this in that uh, we have arguments for and against, right? Is that Mm -hmm. we do have Labor Code 3202. And when the law is ambiguous and we don't know if it's going to go in favor of the applicant or the defense, it's generally construed in favor of the applicant. So we have to keep that in mind as we're going through this litigation, because as courts are assessing this, they have to decide whether that particular provision would apply in these circumstances. But in, in this situation, we what is also a backup measure is you have um, EDD, you have unemployment benefits. So mm-hmm. they have a website that specifically identifies that um, if you have reduced hours in some way, you can seek out unemployment benefits through the state, dis- through the Employment Development Department. So this is available to employees and can be directed in that way. You know, the other thing about EDD is there's the federal... Um, federal law that passed that says everybody who gets a dollar in unemployment benefits in any state is supplemented by $600 a week. Oh, okay. So like my yeah. daughter, you know, she's at Loyola and she's a part-time reception, not receptionist, cashier and waitress, right? At a re- Italian restaurant. Mm-hmm. 
and she hasn't had any work. She hasn't been laid off or fired, but she hasn't had any work. But if you look in the employer's guide, <laughs> the book that we just sent out, uh -huh. you'll see we do we we describe all the changes in the law that have taken place in response to the coronavirus at the federal and state levels. Uh -huh. And one of them is this increase in unemployment. So, so and you don't have to lose your job to get unemployment. You can just have reduced hours. Of course, you get a reduced um, unemployment. But yeah. no matter how much you're reduced, um, no matter how, whether it's you lose a dollar, you know, or a million dollars, you get the extra 600 bucks. You know, that's an important thing right now, mm -hmm. considering our economy is kind it's of like that. It's like that uh, Bible uh, gospel story, the workers in the field, they all got paid the same wage, regardless of what time of day they started. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. And at the very end, all the ones that started at the beginning of the day are like, hey, that's not fair. And then God says, it's my money. I can do with it what I want. <laughs> so that's kind of like the federal government. They're going to give everybody 600 bucks no matter how much they've lost. There's not going to be any proportion. So that is available. I mean, when you think about it, if you get an extra 600 bucks in a lot of jobs, you may actually be making money. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, where's the fairness on all this? <laughs> Tell the injured worker. <laughs> Okay, so in final comments, here's some other scenarios that are important to consider in our current environment. Uh, oh, I just had I'm sorry. I yeah. just had something else. You know, when the EDD goes to file liens mm -hmm. against us because the people got um, unemployment instead of TD, right? This issue will also arise. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So well, the defense won't just be arguing with applicants, <laughs> right? Sure. In fact, if I'm an applicant who's going to make more money on unemployment or disability, then I'm just going to go do that. And then the EDD is going to turn around and come after us saying you should have paid TD. Right. Us yeah. being the employer, of course, and, I'm neutral today. But. And possibly for a lesser sum. Yeah. Is, is what you're indicating, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, I mean, with, with the environment that we're in, there's a lot of gray area. There are a lot of unanswered questions that need to be navigated through. Um, consider where you have an employee who is... Um, working modified duty um, or actually is injured and is not offered modified duty, but then later on is released to modified duty after the layoff. Now, um, is the employer owing uh, going to have to owe the employee TTD benefits when they suddenly become eligible for modified work after a layoff? We don't know, but these are going to be things that have to be um, proven and, and litigated, and it's going to be important on the part of the employer to show proof that they could have offered that employee light duty work had it not been for the layoff. You know, what that reminds me of is the um, termination for cause cases. Okay. Yeah. 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 Like where, like just to explain to the greater audience, uh, if you, if you are um, terminated for cause, like you're stealing from the company and you come back to the employer and say, well, here's my work restrictions. The employer says, well, we would have given you modified duty, but we fired you for stealing. Right. So you don't get any modified duty. Yeah. And then you can't get temporary disability in those cases. You cannot. Right. Because otherwise the employer would have been offering you work. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and does that fall in line with that other thinking? Is that for some non-industrial factor unrelated to the employment? But that, that has to do the with the employer's disability. employee's fault. Whereas if the employee just had a layoff and you come back and say, now I'm partially, it's maybe different. Absolutely. And that's what's not at play in our current environment is mm -hmm. because either side would would say, it's not my fault. It's yeah. not my fault. I'm yeah. not working. Yeah. 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 So another uh, scenario to consider, though, is where you have an employer who partially lays off people. And let's say that those the group of people that were laid off were individuals who were in modified work. And he kept the other employees who are not a modified work. Oh, man, that's not a good idea. Right. So, well, <laughs> and I'm sure you're going to go into detail in the next in the next slides, right, guess, Mike, yeah, on I that think, topic. Yeah, yeah. But um, this is the question is, would there have been modified work available to give the employees if they kept some employees and not others? Hmm. So those are questions that need to be addressed. And again, all of this is... Um, kind of a gray area. There's a lot to, that has to be addressed. Every case has its own merits and has to be assessed on its own facts. Mm. It's true. They're all snowflakes. Everyone is special. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so as I was saying, um, okay, so here's the pop quiz, Rosa. Should you A, discriminate against disabled employees or B, <laughs> not discriminate against disabled employees? Thanks for the easy questions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
<laughs> I don't think I have to answer that one. <laughs> well, I mean, you can see why an employer would do it because they would say, hey, uh, this person is not as you know useful to the organization. So I want to lay this person off first. Uh, but that is very bad. Yeah, because you're not allowed to you're not allowed to discriminate against somebody under ADA, FIHA, and of course you can't discriminate against someone uh, under Labor Code Section 132A. Now a lot of people think, myself included, before I remembered this after preparing this, um, I'd forgotten this uh, that 132A is just discriminating against somebody because they filed a workers' comp claim. That could be a basis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, now that translates into you know discriminating against somebody if they're disabled because they filed a workers' comp claim. That would be a 132A. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's also discriminatory under 132A to make if discriminate against someone who says I'm going to file a claim. You say, well, then you're fired. Right. That's 132A. Yeah. There's not a claim, but I mean, there's no claim form, but that's a discriminatory act. Or uh, discriminating against an employee for receiving a rating award or settlement. So you say, I got hurt in the job. I say, no, you didn't. Yes, I did. I was psychologically injured by your berating of me. <laughs> well, I'm going to defend myself, right? You go uh -huh. to court, you lose. You're the important. Uh, you know what? Okay, you got a worker's comp, psychological injury because of the way I treated you, but you're fired. <laughs> no, that's 132A. Or testifying or making known as or heard intentions to testify in another's employee's disability claim. So, you know, when, when you sue me for your worker's comp claim, and then Mike comes and testifies against you, and I fire Mike. Well, I've discriminated against 132, even though he doesn't even have a workers' comp case. <laughs> <laughs> and what can you get? What can you get when you when you get 132A discrimination and you win win it? Tell you, us, Mike. You get ten thousand dollars up to ten half your benefits up to ten thousand dollars, which is not that big of a deal. But the real zinger is you get reinstated. Wow. Yeah. And you get all the that back could be money. awkward. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, what have I got next here? So how does 132A work briefly? I want to run through this relatively quickly because 132A is going to be filed in these cases. And I want to make a note about something in the law that's been changing in this area. It all started with this Lauer case. Um, this was a Supreme Court case back in 2003. And it, it was a conservative case, and the employers liked it a lot. And um, what happened was, is uh, the Supreme Court rejected um, a, a standard that had been established in earlier cases um, that an applicant could establish a prima facie case merely by showing that he or she had suffered some detrimental consequences as a result of industrial injury. That is, you know, for a long time, uh, the 132A cases said, well, as long as the employer says does something bad to you because you filed the workers' comp claim, then that's enough for 132A, like I was just saying on the prior slide. Right. But Lawer stated an employer um, thus does not necessarily engage in discrimination prohibited by 132A merely because it requires to, the employee to shoulder some of the disadvantages of industrial injuries. He said that the legislature meant to prohibit treating injured employees different, differently, making them suffer disadvantages not visited on other employees because the employee was injured or made a claim. So it's not enough just to do something bad to the employee, but they have to differentiate that worker, make that that worker treat, be treated differently than other workers in Singled order for out. 132A to apply. Yeah. That was law, it was a Supreme Court case, I think, yeah. And it was um, pretty conservative. Right? I mean, it really shocked the, the workers comp 132A world, which yeah. isn't that big of a world, but it shocked that, that, that world. Um, and they said in law that, he, that the employer did not discriminate by using the applicant's sick leave and vacation leave for time taken off work to attend medical appointments after being declared permanent stationary. So the applicant's PNS, and then he's got to go to medical appointments to, in order to care for his work-related injury. And they say, well, you got to use your sick leave and vacation pay. And he says, well, that's one through two A. You know, you're discriminating against me. It's like, no, you're treating him the same as everybody else. Even if it was a non-industrial injury, that's how you would be treated. So Lara imposed this additional standard of this uh, disparate treatment. Um, the quote here is, although his injury was industrial, nothing suggests that his employer singled him out for disadvantage, disadvantageous treatment. I can mouthful, say that's multi-syllabic. <laughs> <laughs> nothing singled, nothing suggested the employer singled him out for disadvantageous treatment because of the industrial nature of his injury, as opposed to a non-industrial injury. Um, 
in um, there was, I have a couple of other cases here that followed it. There was uh, Martinez, County of San Luis Obispo versus WCB Martinez. And the Court of Appeals said, law requires the employee not only, not only to show detriment, but also to show that he was singled out for disadvantageous treatment. And also in Gel Gelson's market, they said the same thing. The applicant has to be singled out um, for disadvantageous treatment. Now, why am I telling you this over and over again? Because now I'm going to tell you how the WCAB has been messing with this. Okay. <laughs> tell us, Mike. <laughs> They've been messing with this. Um, and, you know, people were losing 132As all over the place after law. Because it's like, well, how do you show that they treated you differently than they would the other employees? It's just really hard to do. High standard. Yeah, it's yeah. a high standard. And so they would lose. But then recently, um, the WCAB, as of last year actually, started issuing um, decisions that uh, appear on their face, at least in my, my view, to eat away at the standard of Lauer. It's like they're trying to go pre-Lauer. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, people might disagree with me, but I'll tell you what happened. So there's Franco. And um, they interpreted this singled out for dis disadvantageous treatment um, to be a broader application. Um, they, they said that employees must show that they're subject to disadvantages not visited on other employees because they were injured. So they eliminated the, the requirement that employees prove that they're singled out for disadvantageous treatment and instead requires them to prove they're subject to disadvantages not visited on other employees because they were injured. Kind of shifts it a little bit, it doesn't it? does, it? Yeah, yeah, because really it just says you have to have a disadvantage. Right, yeah. Right, it's yeah. a disadvantage is not visited on other employees. Right. So, which instead was the standard of, before Lauer. Yeah, instead of the employee looking, yeah. you know, before having to say, look, you treated me differently than everybody else. Mm -hmm. Now it's just like, look, you treated me badly. You mm -hmm. treated me badly in comparison to the other employees. Right, yeah. I got disadvantages, mm -hmm. right, yeah. yeah. So it's subtle, but it, it really takes you back. There's this other case, Wall versus um, County of Sacramento. And here, um, there was a, a sergeant sheriff who was out of disability and requested transfer to a different role, but he, he want, I wanted to transfer to a different role because I can't do this job that I'm in. But three other people with less seniority than him were transferred before he was. So he was put behind Mm, he got last on good. the list. Yeah. Yeah. And the supervisor says, look, in the interest of the sheriff's department and public safety, sergeants who could work right away were put on patrol. Because we can't, you know, we can't just have the spot open and wait for him to get better so we can transfer him. Right. So yeah. kind of a dilemma. Yeah. Yeah. So, but the applicant got the next available transfer when he got back to work, but they concluded that there was a 132A violation. The board concluded there was a 132 agent because the applicant was subjected to a disadvantage not visited on other employees. Wow. Yeah. yeah. But that's, that's not really him, you know, singled out relative to employees, it no. seems like. No. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it wouldn't really be a proper application of law, arguably. Uh, so this is the, the world we're going to get in um, when, we, when we start talking about, are we discriminating against um, injured workers under 132A with these layoffs? I mean, um, look, one thing that's that drives employers, and I know because I'm an employer, is the appearance of discrimination. You, you avoiding that, right? I mean, you can't you can't do this because it might look like this, or you can't do that because it might look like that. That's how employers think because mm -hmm. you don't want to get sued, right? right. You you're sued. constantly it's on guard. Good. You're constantly on guard. Yeah. Really, I mean, mm -hmm. this is the environment that we're in now. I'm not saying it's bad because you know discrimination is bad. Right. An employer should be thinking about making sure that discrimination does not occur. Sure. Uh, but this is this is where you can really hurt yourself uh, with COVID-19 is when you're laying people off, it's going to be really tempted to lay off the workers that you don't like, that you don't really want there anymore. And some of those may be people that are suing you that have workers' comp claims. But you get an employer, someone files a workers' comp claim, you're like, okay, all right. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. I can't do anything about it, but, you know, uh -huh. you know, I don't like that. You don't like it. No one likes it when they get sued. Now, some employers are more open-minded and they're like, well, person got hurt but there's a lot of times the workers comp cases descend into argument about whether it was work related and then uh, argument about whether it's being abused taken advantage of and the relationship can to deteriorate rapidly so it's better just to put on the blinders as an employer and just treat everyone the same you know make your decisions for business reasons only what actually will happen probably in practice some of the time is that employers tend to make sure that they they favor 
workers that are that are in a protected class because they don't want it to appear you know i could even see a scenario where an employer would otherwise lay off someone who was on partial disability but doesn't do it because they don't want the possibility they're of afraid suit. of the risk yeah um, yeah so anyway that's about it for uh discrimination um don't do it what about temporary disability benefits to, during quarantine like a lot of us are being sent home i sent home the law for whole offer but we're all working though but let's say a lot of people are sent home and they want to be quarantined and um they're not they don't have it they don't have the disease right um but they have to be quarantined mm -hmm. um do you get temporary disability then not if you don't have a work injury you're right <laughs> Yeah. How can you get temporary Employee, total disability if there's you no can't work, work injury? It's not fair. There's like a, there's an injury, there's an illness out there that could that could hurt you and disable you and kill you. <laughs> and the employer sending you home because it's out there. So and it's your it's be, your sheer fear. That should be workers' comp. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, you're right. There's actually a case on this, a Roman versus WCAB, and here a nurse was exposed to smallpox and or chicken pox sorry and she says you have to go home for 10 days and she missed it all she says i would like ttd please uh, and the wcb said no no you don't get it yeah. you don't have the chicken pox you just can't work because you're exposed to it well, so well, use your sick leave or use your vacation pay but yeah yeah sounds like they got it right on this one uh you can understand why someone might feel frustrated <laughs> sure <laughs> yeah um so there's that so if you're in a quarantine and you're not sick then you're not going to get your temporary disability, I don't think. Right. Hmm. And finally, like I said, I want to keep everyone up to date. We just have a few more minutes, so I wanted to mention this. There is an uh, Assembly Bill 664. It's planned to be introduced to create a conclusive presumption that COVID-19 is compensable for firefighters and cops and some healthcare employees. Um, a conclusive presumption. So anybody working in those essential jobs would be conclusively presumed that their COVID-19 is work-related. Right, mm. yeah. Now this bill is not as intense as we, it was originally um, visualized by the applicant's bar. Um, the, the applicant's bar originally asked for a conclusive presumption that the, if someone su suffered post-traumatic stress mm -hmm. from working in their job, Right. in this environment yeah that it would be conclusively presumed to be compensable mm -hmm. uh, that would have been something and they wanted all essential workers not just cops firefighters and, and healthcare workers so it's a scale back in this form but so it could include grocery clerks mm -hmm. okay in addition though um it th there's some stuff that's added one is that there's other workers comp benefits that you've never seen before hmm. okay. they get reimbursement for personal protective equipment they get preventative medicine and living expenses and housing expenses related to a quarantine. That's a lot of care. That's yeah. a lot of care. Yeah, even it's just it's it's way outside the bounds. It's like a new benefit. I mean, a whole time I've been practicing, it's like there's only three benefits that workers comp for, right? <laughs> it's uh, it also would preclude apportionment for any disability covered by this um, presumption. No apportionment. Wow. Yeah. So. So if you're crazy. firefighter, yeah. <laughs> you're covered. So if you're gonna have uh, COVID nineteen, be a firefighter. But right. I mean, in fairness, these guys these guys are out there putting their lives on the line. They the are. Time. So it's yeah. not too many people really opposing. I think it probably will pass. They are putting their lives at risk. Uh -huh. As it relates to TD, the bill would define injury as including. I have a quote here: directing to enter into quarantine by a licensed health professional, public health officer, or agency. Um or the employer as a result of exposure to or contraction of a communicable, communicable disease, including coronavirus disease, 219. So if you have to be quarantined, you're considered TD. That's what this says. If you have to hmm. be quarantined, you're considered TD. Even if it's not actually coronavirus, it could be any communicable disease. <laughs> wow. So that's, that's TD for quarantine, which we just said you don't get. <laughs> but you would under this presumption. Right, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's, it's a pretty expansive bill in terms of pr proposed, um, uh, care and protective measures, protective you know, for measures, some of those yeah. employees out there that are putting their lives on the, on the line. Yeah. So, yeah. You know what? We just don't know. A lot of states have passed this. Um, my guess would be, is that this will be passed because it's sort of the cultural force, you know, that's going on, uh, with regard to this whole crisis. Right. 
Um, but we don't know that it'll be in this form. You know, the okay. bills don't generally tend to end up looking like they start. Right. You know, they say it's sausage and laws, the two things you don't want to watch being made. <laughs> <laughs> right. So we'll, we'll probably expect some differences. Anyway, we're out of time. Um, I want to thank everyone again uh, for coming and listening to us. And remember, we're going to do this every week and we're going to work through this until we have all the aspects of that we can think of of this coronavirus thing uh, nailed down as best we can in this rapidly changing environment. I conclude here with our uh, our information. We got our solvent on cop books, which everybody loves. And if you don't have them, you must buy them immediately. That's my advertisement. I hope you do check out our new book. I'm really excited about it. I'm really pleased with it. And I want to thank you, Rosa, for coming in and helping me out so I don't have to do this stuff all by myself. No, it's a pleasure. <laughs> thank you for having me. Yeah. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Yeah, thanks. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was brought to you by Sullivan on Comp, the most useful resource for California workers' compensation practitioners. Over 6,000 claims professionals, attorneys, and employers rely on SOC to quickly find answers to the questions that come across their desks. Get $50 off a new subscription with coupon code POD50 P-O-D-5-0 at www.solvenoncomp.com.